Mike mentioned that, that this decision was good, it was necessary, and it was easy. And, and you know, coming from the, the elder team of Renovation Church, that's exactly right. This was an easy, natural, like, oh yeah, decision as we looked at where God was leading us in the last six months and, and, uh, and thinking about how we would move forward, um, Bernie Elliott was the name that immediately came to mind. And the fact that Bernie is willing to serve in this regard is, is exciting. Amen? It's good. Um, so we are in the book of Romans. And if you would turn to Romans chapter 3 this morning, we're going to read that together. Uh, this has been quite a journey so far. And we got a ways to go. Amen? Uh, this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, the gospel really, according to Paul, and uh, we're in a portion of this where we continue to look at the condition of us as human beings. And these have not always been, over the last couple of weeks, easy passages to read, but they are kind passages and I'm going to explain that in a minute as we, as we read this together. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Romans 3, 9 to 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He who has ears, let him hear the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we just come to you this morning and ask that you would speak to us through your word. You are gracious to us in that you speak, that you've given us your word, that you have given us the ability to seek after you, the ability to know you. And we come to you this morning and ask that you would open your word to our hearts, that you would illuminate your scripture to us, that we would somehow through a gift from you be able to understand, be able to know, have our eyes opened, have a clear picture of who we are before you, God. That's our prayer. Help us this morning to feel this and to know it like we've never known it before. That in doing that, we this morning could recognize and taste the sweetness of your gospel. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. So we continue in the beginning of this letter, Paul's indictment on humankind for sin. And uh, these aren't like fun verses, right? It's not like we read... Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and go, yeah, that was so fun, right? This is, this is not easy stuff to read, but it's kind. The reading of this is kind. It's, um, can you imagine if you went to a doctor, and you heard 
these very, very difficult words, as so many have heard, um, a, a diagnosis that would be troubling, a diagnosis that would be difficult. You, you go to the doctor, you get scanned, you get checked out because there's some symptoms, and the doctor sits with you and, and discusses with you, you know, difficult news. What we see in the diagnosis, I'm sorry, what we see in the scans is that, that you have cancer or you have this disease or you have some, some troubling medical news. And now that we know, now that we see, now that it's clear what your diagnosis is, I'm going to communicate as a doctor these difficult words to you because there is treatment, there is an answer, there is a way forward. In that difficult news, would you recognize with me this morning that there is a kindness to that? Is there not? If you were to have a doctor come to you and see that there was a bad diagnosis, see that there was maybe cancer or something troubling, and they were too scared to tell you, and they just looked at you and said, no, you're good, everything's fine, you may leave that doctor's office happy, right? You may leave that doctor's office feeling great for the next six months, and then you would pay later on. So in the word of the Lord this morning to us, in Romans chapter 3, there is kindness. There is a graciousness because there's a clarity of our position as human beings before God. There's a clarity in our diagnosis before God. And, and we are getting to the point where, where God is going to reveal to us through his word that there's treatment, there's an answer, there's a, there's a remedy, amen? But we need to know what the problem is first, do we not? What I'm about to talk to you about this morning, people in our culture today profoundly disagree with. There is radical disagreement in our culture about this revealed truth in Scripture this morning. I was having lunch with a dear friend, a, a man that I just have loved to be close to, loved to be friends with for at least the last 10 years, and we eat lunch often, as you can see. Um, <clears throat> it's, it, is, it is a stated priority in my life many times. Um, and so we were again having lunch, uh, and our, our conversation turned towards, uh, towards the gospel, and, and he began to communicate with me and, and ask me questions about my faith, and, and I had an opportunity to talk with him. And we ran into this, this issue right here that's addressed in Romans chapter 3, as I often have with people who don't know Christ. And, and we began to talk. And, and he looked to me, um, for those of, the, those of you that don't know, my vocation, I'm a prosecutor at the DA's office, have been um, chief of the Special Victims Bureau. So my job and my unit's job is to prosecute child abuse, sex crimes, um, domestic violence, and homicides of children and, and of intimate partners. And so... That's been my job the last 10 years um, in supervising the last four or five. And so we, we be, he, he is in that a similar vocation as an attorney as well. And so we're having lunch. And, and as we turn to this topic of conversation, as I began to describe to him the gospel, the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he did not understand um, the sweetness of the gospel because he had the response that we hear so often. When you talk with someone about, you know, why would God let you into heaven? If there is a God, why would you, why would you go uh, and be able to live in his presence? And, and the immediate response of the worldview that is held by so many in our culture today is what? Because I, I, I'm a good person. Right? And, and he couldn't conceive of the sweetness of the gospel as he, as he talked to me. And he said, how could you say that you're a sinner? Look at the people we deal with. Look at the depths of, of depravity that we see every day as people hurt their children, as people hurt their loved ones in such awful, awful ways. Of course, they're, they're destined for damnation. And you and me, who are so different in the way that we've chosen to live our lives, I have to believe we're okay. I have to believe that we're better than that. And so I'm just counting on this idea that I'm good enough, right? That I've tried hard enough. And what Paul's communicating 
in, in Romans chapter 3 flies directly in the face of this worldview, of this idea that man is under sin. So let's look at that together. Romans 3, we see in verse 9, Paul uh, responding to what he's already written, and he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. But we have already charged that, both, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What an incredible statement. What an incredible declaration to be under sin. So here, Paul has described in his thesis statement in Romans chapter 1, in Romans 1, he, he articulates the thesis of the gospel, of the good news of the gospel, and it's very exciting. In Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, we learn that, that this faith um, that this faith is ours, this gift of God and the, and the sweetness and the grace of the gospel. And then quickly in this letter, Paul's writing turns to the open and, and, and almost uh, welcomed sin of the Greek or of the Gentile in his mind. Those who are not under the law, they, they live a life of sinfulness. And, and as he's writing this letter, we see that, that there's this, this general universal suppression of the truth that we've exchanged for a lie. The truth that God has revealed of himself to everybody in nature and in everything that is so obvious to us as we look around at creation, we've, we've suppressed the truth in our broken, sinful state, and we've exchanged it for a lie, right? Paul writes that. And, and he also writes to the Jews who would, who would look at the Gentiles and would say, yeah, of course they're sinful. Of course they're, they're wrong. But we have the law. And he looks to the Jews and he says, you're no better in your hypocrisy, and in your, in your de declaration that you know what the law is, you condemn yourselves because you know it's wrong, but yet you do it anyway. And in your heart, you're sinful as well. And that's chapter two. And so in his conclusion right here, we say, he, he says, what then? In consideration of that, what then? Are Jews better off? In the rhetorical question, the answer is no. And he says, for all. Jews and Greeks, and in the way that he's writing this in this century, it just means everybody. He's talking about everybody is under sin. What an incredible declaration. Wow. Everybody is under sin. It's not just that we commit sins, right? It's not just that we do sins and that from time to time we mess up. There is an articulation in the word of God, an indictment on us, that declares when sin entered the world, the fallenness, the brokenness of man, we are under the weight of sin. It's like, you know, in our vernacular, we would say, you know, I'm doing good at work. I'm just on top of things. You know, I'm doing well. We're not on top of things. We are under sin. We are under the weight and the brokenness of sin, incapable in and of ourselves to come out from under a sinful state. It is a sickness that we have all contracted and that we all have as we are under this and it leads to death. Do you hear what he's saying this morning? Everybody, Jew and Greek, under sin. What an incredible declaration. In, in an age where everybody's just good, right? In an age where People believe that people are inherently okay. People are inherently good. And, and, you know, you would say, well, you know, aren't we better now in a civilized society? You know, we're, we're, we're generally good. We've generally made improvements. We're so civilized. We're not, we're not like those of old that are barbaric and treat each other terribly. We're so civilized today. We've, we're so progressive We've, we've evolved so much and we've gotten to this place where we're just so much better to each other. Take a look around. Ask yourself if that's true. In light of not just the word of God and what he declares to be true, look at the facts and let's ask ourselves if the word of God may be right. In our worldview today, dead, dead wrong. They did a study of the deadliest centuries in the history of our planet. The first century was the most peaceful. The 19th century 
was actually the second most peaceful century. The first quarter of the 20th century was the dead, this is pre-World War II, pre-Stalin's massive execution of of millions of people, pre-Holocaust. The first quarter of the 20th century was the deadliest time period alone in the history of the planet. Post-enlightenment, post-progressive idealism, post, post all the things that we think we achieved that have now caused us into this new progressive idea of thought, post-humanism spread throughout the world, and the idea that we in and of ourselves are capable and better, uh, post-naturalism taking over all of the sciences, post-everything enlightenment uh, generated, the deadliest century in the history of the planet by far. Khmer Rouge, Boxer Rebellion, Stalin, all humanists. Hitler. Deadliest century by far. In and of ourselves, on our own merit, with our own works, with our own mental capacity, in this civilized society, do we treat each other better? The answer is clear. So Paul gives his final indictment in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. I write indictments every day. That's what I do for a living. So you look at the evidence, and you present the evidence in New York State. We present the evidence to a grand jury. We call witnesses. We produce evidence. And from that, we look at the law, and we take the facts and we, we apply it to the law, and we write up an indictment. And it's almost exactly what Paul's doing here. This is really, Romans chapter 3, legal language. It begins in verse 21 that we're going to talk about next week, begins to talk about um, justification. Um, we see this legal language here. And so Paul writes an indictment. Let's look at this indictment. And what he does as he writes this indictment is he supports it with evidence. And the evidence that Paul uses as he's writing this letter He uses the revealed word of God in the Old Testament. And he quotes six Old Testament passages to produce evidence for this indictment of sin of mankind. He uses five verses from the Psalms, starting in Psalm 14. And he uses a passage from Isaiah to support this indictment that we need to recognize this morning. And listen, folks, as we're talking about this, as we're listening to the word of God, as we're reading this indictment, my prayer for you and for me, as I've been pondering over this, is that we would feel this, is that we would see this clearly because the sweetness of the gospel depends on it. The amazing grace and love and mercy and sweetness of the Father will come right through as we recognize our desperate state before God this morning. Amen? Amen. So here's the indictment as we look at it. Count one. No one is righteous. No, not one. What then? I'm going to go back to verse 9. Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Because count one, quoting Psalm 14. No one is righteous. No, not one. And what is the idea here? What is he combating here? Self-righteousness, right? The idea that we are righteous in and of ourselves. I did some good things today. I'm righteous. I'm okay. I'm doing all right. And Paul declares in this indictment under count one that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one in and of themselves stands up to God in his righteousness. We talk about the perfect, holy, awesome righteousness of a God in his perfection. And as we measure our lives, not compared to each other, but compared to him. Not compared to those who seem to do worse things than we do, but compared to him, we see in this indictment, that no one is righteous. You know, 90% of people, as I said before, that we talked to today would say, I tried to be good. I tried to do a good job in my life. That should be enough. I talked to another friend of mine, another man a couple years ago, as I shared the gospel, and we were driving together on a long trip. And he said, I'm just trying to be good. And I feel like that's got to be enough. If there is a God, when I stand before God, my effort to try to be good must be enough. And Paul declares in his word today, no one's righteous. No one, nobody, no, not one. In this fallen world, in this broken world, as sin has entered and we have the state of being under sin, 
Nobody, nobody's righteous. Nobody could stand as we stand before the Lord. Count two, no one seeks after God. No one seeks for God. I apologize. Count two is no one understands. So no one is righteous, count one. No one understands is count two. This idea that we can grasp the things of God as an unregenerate person without a gift from God, without him coming and illuminating his word to us, we don't understand. It seems like foolishness to those who don't know him, the word of God, who he is, who we are, how we relate to him. And in in, in count two, we see from the scripture that no one understands the things of God. In and of ourselves, we're not righteous. And in and of ourselves, we don't understand. We don't understand the things of God. We don't understand what he's doing. We don't understand who he is. We're incapable of it in our sin. But the word of God says, no one, count three, seeks for God. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous. No one understands. And following through that in logic is is in our unrighteousness and in our lack of understanding. None of us seek. None of us seek after God. And some of you would say, wait a minute. We got whole churches that are designed for seekers, right? What do you mean no one seeks God? I have friends that are seekers. I have friends that are seeking. How is that possible? We've designed entire worship services for seekers. The word of God says no one seeks God. How do we reconcile that? All I have to do is look in my own life and recognize that before the gift of God, the regenerating mercy of God in my life, I sought things. I sought what? What do we see in the life of everyone as they frantically run through life pursuing what? Peace. People seek peace. Pursuing happiness. Pursuing freedom from guilt. Pursuing freedom from from feeling awful. Pursuing happiness and peace. But what the word of God declares to us in our pursuit for the things that God offers, we don't pursue the author of those things. In our pursuit of, of the benefits that God delivers and only God can give us, we do not seek the God who gives them. So what we see around us and what we had experienced in our own lives is yes, we pursue peace, but we don't pursue the Prince of Peace. We pursue joy and we pursue happiness and we pursue the plan that would give us those things, but we do not pursue the one who creates that plan, the one who created us, the one who's sovereign over us, amen? Look to the rich young ruler in scripture. You remember this story? As he comes to Jesus and calls him good teacher, and Jesus looks at him and says, why do you call me good? And Jesus in this interaction is not questioning his own holiness, obviously, as God. He's not questioning his own goodness. But what he's saying to this man is, you don't know me. How do you know that I'm good? And the rich young ruler comes to Christ. He says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, you know, you know the Ten Commandments. You know the law of the Lord. And the rich young ruler looks to Jesus almost like, phew, right? I've been doing that since I was a kid. I've kept all those commandments. I've been doing that since I was a youth. I don't murder. I haven't stolen. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done any of these things. Jesus Jesus doesn't look at him and say, no, you haven't. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, you know, you're full of it. You don't even understand these commandments. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, hey, good job. You've kept all the commandments. Good luck on your own righteousness. Jesus simply responds by going right to the first commandment. You'll have no other God before me. So I'm going to get right to your heart. I want you to leave, walk away, 
sell everything that you own and come follow me. The Bible says the rich young ruler walked away sad because he owned much. We look at the state of our heart. We look at the state of what we truly love. We can't stand it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Have you done that this morning? Have I done that this morning? I don't believe I've done that for five seconds to the degree that I'm required to. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Count four. All have turned aside. So in our lack of righteousness, of our lack of understanding, and our lack of seeking, we do see that When Jesus comes into the life of someone and there's regeneration and there's salvation in the moment that God regenerates us, in the moment that God saves us, in the moment that God's grace collides with our recognition that we need to completely rely on him and we can't do it in and of ourselves, then we see Jesus declare, now seek ye first the kingdom of God. Amen? Those who know Jesus begin to seek God and begin to pursue God, but prior to that, no one seeks God. And then we see as that leads into count four, of this indictment. All have turned aside. And our lack of righteousness, our lack of understanding, and our lack of seeking, how could we go the right way? It's impossible. So we've all turned aside. We've all gone the wrong way. And together, we we have become worthless. That's what it says. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. Think about that for a moment. The pursuit of our life the pursuit of our desires, the pursuit of our fleshly um, goals that we go after in life and our inability to seek God, understand God, live a righteous life. We pursue our own things. And at the end of our days, if that's all we have, it's what? Worthless. Back in the age of word processors, my kids have no idea what that word even means. It was like this thing, pre-computer, right, that you typed on, and it was, it was Word, Microsoft Word, for, for the millennials in the room. Um, it was before Word. It was just, that's all it did. And, and I was in college, and we had gotten one of these in the dorm, and it was one of my first times using this and not just writing my papers, and I stayed up all night drinking a pot of coffee writing my paper in undergrad and at about four in the morning hitting some button that meant something that I didn't understand other than it was what? It was all gone. Anybody been there? And I had no capacity to retrieve it. And given the fact that it probably didn't make sense anyway, as I was writing it through like from 11 at night through midnight, one, two, three in the morning, I'm at about four in the morning realizing I can't recreate whatever just happened over the last four hours, and it is completely gone. My work, my toil, the coffee, everything (coughs) was worthless. Anybody ever been there? The rich, the famous of this world, those that we love so dearly, the work, the toil, the achievement, the award ceremonies, the looking to each other and telling each other good job, all of it amounts in our lack and our ability to seek God, to understand God, all of it amounts to what? Nothing. It's, it's, it's of no worth in the scheme of eternity and in the scheme of what God thinks matters. The fourth count of this indictment. So many things we pursue, so many things we, we go after, so many things sometimes we put above God and think that they're worth something. And in the scheme of things, it does not matter. We spend so much time and money and resources pursuing that is that that is of tomorrow's garage sales. We give no care, no pursuit, no life 
effort, life blood, life, life pursuit for the things that really matter. So passionate about that thing I want. Then in a couple years is meaningless. No one pursues God. They've turned aside. Together they've become worthless. What a tragedy. Count five. No one does good. No, not one. Well, come on, Jeremy. Come on. No one does good. No one does good things. That doesn't wash with what I know to be true. I know a lot of people who do good things. I, I have friends that don't know Christ, that are atheists, that have no, no thought after God, and they serve the poor. They give their time. They help people. They do good things all the time. And, and, and even in my own reading of this, I had to take a step back and say, God, what are you saying? What is your word saying? And as I began to look at this passage and what rises from this indictment in count five, I, I, I realized I'm measuring what's good based on my human measurements of what's good. But how does God measure what we do as being good? There's two aspects to doing something good. There's the aspect of an outward action. I didn't cheat on the test. That was good. I didn't lie when it would have helped me to lie. That was good. But we never look to the thing that we know declared throughout Scripture that God looks to. What is the inward motivation to your action? Where is your heart in relationship to what you're doing? Is your heart trying to please and love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind in the actions that you're doing? And I quickly realized that apart from the regenerating work of Jesus Christ in my life, even in my good actions, my heart is deceitful and selfish in pursuing my own way. Even when I do good things outwardly, inwardly I am bent and broken and twisted by sin. I tell the truth when it helps me to tell the truth. I give my time when it helps me to give my time. I give my money when it helps me to give my money. I do things when it helps me in my selfish pursuit. And generally, apart from God's work in my life, I am not looking to love and please and serve God with my whole heart in my actions. It's generally to love and please and serve myself. So Paul declares in the fifth count of the indictment, no one does good. Not really. No. And in case you didn't get it, no one does good. No, not one. So here we are. Under sin. Do people do good things? Calvin called it civic righteousness. But under God's definition of good, our hearts are bad. Calvin said that to be under sin means that we are justly condemned as sinners before God or that we are held under the curse which is due to sin. For as righteousness brings with it absolution, our sin is followed by condemnation. We recognize after reading this indictment that we are under sin. We recognize after reading this indictment that in and of our own effort, in and of ourselves, we cannot come out from under the state that we're in. He now turns as evidence and proof of this indictment to metaphors as if we didn't feel this enough. Let's feel it some more. And he turns to some metaphors to describe our sinful state. Let's read it together. The first metaphor starts with our throat, then we go to our tongues, then we go to our lips, then we go to our feet, and he's describing our sinful state in metaphor form. Our throat is an open grave, number one. Our throat is an open grave. And, and this rings of Jesus looking at the Pharisees and saying, you're like whitewashed tombs, but inside you're all dead, full of dead man's bones. If you were to look into the throat of us, you would see inside that it's dead, regardless of how we fake it and look on the outside, on the inside. Your throat's as 
like it's an open grave. On the inside, it's only dead. Number two, your tongue deceives. You don't love the truth. Our tongues are deceptive, are they not? Our tongues don't know the truth. He continues the metaphor. We only tell the truth when it helps us. Number three, poison of asps under your lip, asps under your lips. It's the, an asp was one of the deadliest, deadliest of reptiles. You harken back to uh, Cleopatra was bitten and killed by this. And it's as if the sacks of venom are under our tongue, under our lips, full of this poison. We only need, listen, how, how true does this ring to us as we read the word of God together this morning? Just turn on cable news for five minutes. Can we destroy with our tongue? Can we kill? Can we tear down? Can we just do incredible, destructive things to each other with the way that we talk? Introspectively, even looking into our own lives, looking into my life, quickly, can I utilize the power of the tongue to hurt, to destroy? See it with our kids. See it in our own lives. As we recognize the truth of the scripture, mouths full of cursing and bitterness. You ever watch old movies and think, you know, how did people communicate in film before they just cursed nonstop, right? Were they able even to communicate anything? I always, I, it is certainly the state of our society today, is it not? That vulgar cursing and bitterness is the norm. I have, I have a coworker, just, uh, he's like an Olympic champion of cursing, right? Just can work it into every sentence multiple times. You watch those old movies and you think, wow, unbelievable. Or even old music, you know. You hear, you hear some music today and you're like, wow, they're really not hiding the ball at all. Like, it's very clear what he is singing about in regards to her. There's no, there's no metaphor. There's no, it's just very clear. And we have, we have grown familiar, hugely familiar with vulgar Cursing and talk. You guys ready to be done with this indictment yet? We're getting there. Come on. <laughs> Feet swift to shed blood. In our bitterness, we run for violence. Ruin and misery are in our paths. Some people would say, we're so much better today. I think we've articulated the reality that even in our civilized society, we're not. Number eight, no fear of God before their eyes. What do we recognize at the end of this person in and of themselves, without the work of God in their life, who doesn't, isn't righteous, doesn't understand God, doesn't seek after God, his way has gone away from God to, to the pursuits being just worthless, their, their throats as if an open grave. Their, their tongue is, has poison in it. And, and their, their way is violent and, and full of cursing. And, and it's destructive. And, and they're violent and their feet are quick to do violent. And they bring misery in their paths. What do we see about who this person ultimately is? And what we see in this worldview of thinking we're okay in and of ourselves, in and of our own righteousness, in and of our own effort. What do we see? We see someone who does not fear God. There's no awe for God. There's no respect for God. There's no even, even looking to God. It's, it's God is mocked and useless and there is no fear. And as I read the word of God and as I see who God truly is in relationship to me, that is a scary state to be in, 
is it not? The awesome God of the universe whose judgment on sin should be the scariest thing we could ever conceive of. There is no fear for him. I'm okay, you're okay. You be you, I'll be me. The, the, the greatest thing you can achieve in life is to find yourself and to do whatever it is that makes you happy. Is that not the message of our day? What a lie. What deceit. As we recognize who we really are, the truth of what we really are in relationship to God. We see this need for what? The fear of the Lord. But he's a loving, gracious, forgiving God. Yes, he is. And I still fear him as I think about the depth of my own sin. As I look at my life and where I fall short and where my character and the characteristics of who I am measures more up to this indictment than it does to anything else. I recognize something, and that, folks, is the purpose of this passage. As we feel this this morning, get ready for verse 21, because the purpose of this passage is for us to recognize that nobody's righteousness in and of themselves, no one can measure up in and of yourself, and that's why Jesus came, amen? That's why his righteousness has fulfilled everything that needs to be fulfilled. And, and under sin and under this indictment, God gives us the gift of, of realizing our need to rely on him completely. God, I can't do it. I can't pull it off. I'm not even looking for you apart from you coming into my life, invading my space and drawing me to yourself and giving me the ability to see my need for you. Amen? This is sweet, sweet news. This is good news. My friend at lunch, I said to him, as he lives under the great stress of his life, and, and at any moment he feels as though he could lose everything, I was able to look at him across the lunch table and say, man, his burden is light. His yoke is light. You need to, I, I said, you know, I'm not going to say his name, but I said, friend, you just need to, you need to come to the end of yourself and stop trying so hard to be good. Stop trying so hard to achieve it and recognize your need to rely on Christ because he has done it for you. And I don't know what he took away from that conversation. And I know I'll have many more conversations with him. As he's seeking peace, I pray that God does something in his heart that he realizes he needs to seek the Prince of Peace. Amen? The one who can give it to him. This indictment leads us to that place. I want you to think about this for a minute, and I'm going to close. I know I've gone a little long. When I'm getting evidence prepared in a case, I'm always trying to find things as a prosecutor that get me to the truth and that, that I can add into evidence that show that my, that, that, that my version of the facts is exactly what happened in a particular case. And so we do a lot of things. We employ a lot of investigative strategies. i got to tell you, one of the greatest things in the world are jail calls. You can imagine. It's unbelievable. It says when you're sitting in jail that this is being recorded. I don't think anyone ever thinks that we're going to listen to it. <laughs> but we do. Amazing the gold I get as a prosecutor um, from jail calls. Uh, I had a man... Uh, confess to his mother that he had killed somebody on the jail calls that he had been arrested for. He had killed a woman. And uh, I'm listening to the jail calls. And he said, yeah, mom, you know, this is what happened. This is what I did. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, wow, this is great. I'm taking notes and writing down the time of the call with his mother where he confessed to it. And then he said, mom, I got to tell you, I love the chocolate milk at the jail. And the guard keeps slipping me extra chocolate milk. And she's like, okay, that's great, honey. And he says, well, I've got to be careful, though. They listen to these calls, and I don't want to lose the chocolate milk. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, wow. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Text messages, 
I've had very, very difficult sexual assault cases where the perpetrator texts the victim, I'm sorry, and apologize. We're always dumping phones, getting text messages, getting jail calls, talking to witnesses, trying to gain things, everything that I can find to produce the evidence. We have this incredible gift this morning. We have a God who knows every single thing you have ever thought, you have ever said, you have ever done, you've ever thought of you. You get the gracious gift, I get the gracious gift this morning of knowing my darkest, my deepest, my worst thoughts that, that are logged in the, in the computer of my brain, my worst words that have ever been spoken out of my mouth to another person in private, the worst most awful things I have ever done. God knows everything. It can be brought into the light because the gracious God of the universe who knows every sin, every thought, every word, every motivation of your heart and of your mind comes to you this morning as someone who knows everything. The evidence is, is there. And under this indictment in this passage, it says every mouth will be closed. In verse 20, it means in the courtroom of God, as we stand before God, in the moment when we would proffer our defense, in the moment when we would say, but God, I, but God, what about this? But wait a minute, here's my defense. In that moment when it's our opportunity to put on our case in the courtroom of the God who knows everything, we stand like this. There is nothing we can say. Every mouth will be closed because he knows it all already. Verse 20, verse 19 and 20. Now we know whatever the law, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world would be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. When our lives are measured next to the plumb line of the law of God, we see the wall is crooked. The knowledge of our sin, the reality of this indictment that Paul has leveled in Romans chapter 3, brings us to a place where we recognize what? Our need for God. The fact that we even are crooked. We wouldn't even know we were committing sins unless God dropped the plumb line of the law of God to show us that next to that straight line, we're crooked. And as we see it, we see our need. We see our desperate need for God. And what is the purpose of this? So that every one of us sitting in this place right now would flee to the feet of the cross, would flee to Jesus recognizing we are under sin and we are crooked and we need him. The next verse says this, and Mike's going to preach on it next week. But it is the great apostolic however, R.C. Sproul says. Because the apostolic but does not seem right. But here it is. <clears throat> but now. Read that verse with great joy. Read that verse with great anticipation. After this indictment, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Amen? That's where we're going. That's where we are going. If you're here this morning, know this. Your helpless state, the news of your helpless state is good news because Jesus comes with the answer. Jesus, apart from the law, is your righteousness. He is the substitute for you. He is going to put in place of your failure, in sin, in falling short, his non-failure, his success, his righteousness that is perfect. He's going to substitute it. He's going to exchange it for you. And if that's where you are this morning, receive it. Come to the end of yourself and realize we can't do it on our own. Within our own works, no one could stand. Nobody. No one. But 
God has made a way through Jesus, who is our righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for a loving but accurate diagnosis from your word. In this morning, the best thing we can do is recognize our need. This morning, the best thing we can do is come to an end of our own effort, of our own desire to do it on our own, to, to self-justify. The best thing we can do this morning is recognize the depth of our own sin. And God, turn to you. You are just and you are the justifier. You are the only one who declares us not guilty. As we stand in your courtroom with our mouth shut, under sin, because of Jesus, you look at us and you declare us not guilty. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ, if we are in him, you declare us not guilty. And we admit to you this morning we are guilty. We have sinned. We have fallen short. And we look to you for your grace. We look to you, Christ, for this great exchange. That somehow your righteousness could be ours. Blows our mind. That somehow you who knew no sin hung on that cross and paid for my sin. Blows our mind. That somehow you, the only one who didn't deserve to suffer, you suffered the ultimate suffering, the ultimate separation for God so that I don't have to. This morning we turn to you. We look to you. Help us to seek after you. We stand on the foundation, not of our own righteousness, which is like filthy rags. We stand on the foundation of Christ and who you are and what you've done. And we live lives that, that not in effort try to earn it, but we live lives that stand on it and say, thank you. We are grateful. Be glorified in us. Be worshipped in us. In Jesus' name, everybody said.